Welcome to episode 489 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not reflecting those of our institutions, clients, friends, family, not even our pets. Great group of people for the news roundup today. Uh, Sultan Meiji, who was former FDIC and Pratt Engineering School at Duke and is currently co-founder and CEO of Frontier Foundry. Sultan, what is Frontier Foundry? So Frontier Foundry is a very, very early stage artificial intelligence firm focusing on some of the most complicated analytics out there and doing it in a manner that is unlike what a lot of the public open cloud big tech firms do. Excellent. If you care about security and compliance and regulation, we might be a better fit. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Uh, so I, I knew you were going to do a startup sooner or later, so I'm not surprised, but congrats, although the hard part is still to come. That's absolutely true. <laughs> and Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at Brookings. Maury Schenk, who is our London-based lawyer and technologist. And as a special treat, we have a kind of bonus episode in which we're going to be interviewing Rob Silvers, who is the Undersecretary for Policy of the Department of Homeland Security, and most importantly, the chairman of the Cyber Safety Review Board, which has done some very good reports on recent cybersecurity incidents. And we'll be talking to him about the effort to create a legislative basis for the Cyber Safety Review Board. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. And Sultan, since you're doing AI startups, why don't we ask you to kick off with a story about uh, a lot of AI fakes, which is, you know, to my mind, kind of a, uh, a moral panic amongst the Digirati these days. There was one story that suggested that Joe Biden's voice was cloned for a, a robocall to New Hampshire Democrats, basically telling them not to vote. Well, it's a growing problem. And one, I think, Stuart, you and I must have talked about in the last two or three years, you know, dozens of times. Yeah. Times. Yeah. And it's, you know, to, to refresh everyone, the, the two points I actually went back and listened to one of our podcasts that I want to make is one is the technology is far more accessible, far cheaper, and the source data you use to build it is unbelievably accessible. And so it's easy to automate and weaponize these. And I think, you know, just in the last two weeks, we've now started to see this. And so we're seeing it in a bunch of different areas. And the, the first one, I think, that directly applies to the ongoing political elections for the 24 presidential cycle is these fake Joe Biden robocalls telling people to say, I think the expression is something like save your vote for November. And you, you hear stuff like this trying to, in essence, guide people who don't understand the electoral process as necessarily as well as they need to, to not vote. And this is just the first salvo of this. You know, for the last few years, we've seen this in other countries, especially, but I think this, this election cycle, we'll see a lot more of it. And this first salvo was pretty interesting. Yeah. It fooled at least one person. The fake Joe Biden said, essentially, call this woman. And she was leading a right Joe Biden in campaign because the Democrats had decided that they were going to punish New Hampshire and say, you can't be the first primary. It's got to be South Carolina. And so they weren't running candidates. And so you had to, to write Biden in for him to win. And this woman says, oh, Joe Biden told me to call you. So it is possible for people to get fooled by these. 
Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was I was deep fake not too long ago, and it was to shill for a specific crypto project, you know, in an, an audio piece, and it just it's happening. And the cost to do it is very very low. The activity around the the ease of use is very very high, and we should all start to think about these kinds of things. Yeah, we just you just have to be alert to the possibility that it if it just because it sounds like somebody you know, it's not really somebody you know. Yeah. It, it's similar to how you know, let's say five years ago. Nobody thought about multi-factor authentication. Right? right. They never thought, oh, I need to, you know, change my passwords or use a password manager, these kinds of things. It's just now becoming part of our civilization and we just have to start doing it. The problem is in what will be, I guess, officially the longest presidential election in American history, you know, we've seen some of these first salvos. Yep. Yep. The Taylor Swift videos, which were, no one was really fooled by them. Uh, they were just a form of abuse. Doesn't that present a different problem than the Biden? I think it does. Yeah, we've got like three or four of them. There was a Dean Phillips bot where you could exchange views and Dean Phillips, the bot would tell you what Dean Phillips thought about certain issues. And that was not done without his permission, but it was done by a super PAC, which wasn't allowed to actually ask for his permission. And OpenAI banned it because they have said, we don't want our technology used in political campaigns, which I thought was kind of dumb to say you can't use it at all in political campaigns when, you know, this would have been a perfectly good use of the technology other than the fact that they had said, well, you can use it if you have permission. And they couldn't ask for permission because that would have been a violation of the uh, federal election law, which seems like a pretty technical reason to, to say that we're going to ban you. The fix in, in the Taylor Swift case, though, at least the one that X, formerly known as Twitter, used was to shut down all references to Taylor Swift. Yeah, you can't, say, you can't say you can't search for her name. That's uh, that's yeah. tough. But it's not a great result if you're Joe Biden. I mean, the way to shut Joe Biden up is just to do a fake video of him. And then suddenly everybody stops talking about Joe Biden. Yeah, so yeah. It'll be a fix. Yeah. Although, you know, the way he's going, maybe he'd be better off if we didn't talk about it. <laughs> if I could jump in with a plug, I've been helping lead a series of AI consultations at a place called St. George's House at Windsor Castle. And we're just organizing one on election interference, the risk of AI to elections probably will be in May and June, May or June, because, you know, we got it. Half the world is voting this year, including the UK. And you think you have something to say about that and you're a relatively well-known person reach out i'm on the this is maury i'm on the step to website and we'll uh, consider you putting in a, you and our little group of people who's going to talk about that yeah nice place well we should definitely get some of our listeners to talk to you i kind of feel this problem should be broken down into pieces you know the biden thing is bad and people need to, to watch for it the dean phillips thing didn't strike me as very bad the George Carlin thing that uh, these two podcasters produced a what amounts to a Carlin monologue about a bunch of topics that Carlin never monologued about. And they trained it on his past commentary. They're getting sued on the ground that that's some kind of copyright violation, which I think is just wrong. You know, I can do parodies. I can do commentary. I can read Carlin's stuff and try to imitate its style. And that's all that's really going on in these efforts to use AI to produce more Carlin type content. I agree so much with you, Stuart, that we got to break it down. I've got 
One of my other projects is a, in the last two months, I've been building up a website called sci-hub.info where it's basically to provide information on AI harms and risks as a public resource. And we hope we're about to get some funding for it. And the, the whole approach of the website is this stuff isn't one problem. It's not two problems. It's like 50 problems. You've got to come up with a list of them and then mm -hmm. in, a risk, in a sensible way, think about what are the technical, what are the potential regulatory solutions for each one. Yeah. I would argue that AI porn is better than real life porn because with real life porn, there's at least one and probably more potential victims, real people. And if it's AI, you know, no, no people were harmed in the making of it. And you may still not like the porn or you may not like the fact that it imitates some person, but that person is hurt in a way quite different from actually participating in it. You know, Stuart, isn't, and forgive me, you're going to know this better than I do, but it wasn't that a lot of the argument around video game ratings 15, 10, 15 years ago around things like yeah. Call of Duty? And yeah, there was like fake that. violence. Yeah, the fake violence thing, right? Yeah, yeah. well, we're talking about AI harms. We used to talk about harms and people say, well, you're objecting to AI. I mean, clearly there are at least as many potential benefits as there are harms. I think we're talking about harms maybe because we're lawyers and some people got to worry about this, but there's <laughs> lots of benefits. And maybe harming less, you know, harming less people with pornography may be a, a benefit. On the other hand, some of these deep fakes are a significant new harm. Well, if you're the person who's portrayed engaging in pornography, it really hurts you. And I'm sure, you know, Tay-Tay is pretty upset about this. I'm not sure there's a great answer because, you know, it's so easy for the AI to be kind of looking like Taylor Swift and kind of not. And at what point do you say, okay, that you can't do? I suspect that we're going to have a lot of difficulty creating a, uh, a rule that says you can't produce porn or even nudes if it looks too much like somebody famous. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you guys have hit on one of the most interesting and I think problematic issues we have that we haven't solved, which is AI isn't a thing. It isn't one thing. It is right. used in one way, right? It is a far more nuanced. It hits every aspect of technology. You can generate imagery, you can analyze imagery, you can generate voice, you can, you know, there's just a million different pieces to this. And, you know, trying to create one AI rule to rule them all is, I think, a, a waste of time, frankly. And even if it does anything good, it'll probably end up doing more harm than anything else because it'll stop the innovation. It'll stop the use of AI that actually has a lot of value, right? Yeah, that actually is a pretty good segue to this next story about New York, which rushed in to regulate the use of AI in hiring. And its reward is that people are just kind of ignoring its law. <laughs> Yeah, I, let me jump in on that one, Stuart. I mean, the the law's been in place for about about six months now, and it requires employers employers that's important to conduct these bias audits for every employment tool that they use that is quote automated. I actually testified in favor of an earlier version that put the burden on the vendor. It seemed uh -huh. to me that that uh, the public disclosure of any kind of direct uh, disparate impact. That might be valuable information for the employers. I mean, they were the potential customers and they, they sort of should know, you know, if there's going to be a discrimination problem with the tool they're using. But the law got changed and it put the burden on the employer and not the vendor. I'm not sure why, but there it is. And the latest study says that the employers are largely ignoring it. They're not quite ignoring it. They're doing the bias audits, but they're not making them public. The reasoning is that if you look at the text of the law, 
it says you only have to make it public when the tool was actually used to make decisions. And now, you know, the, the employers have had this kind of issue before under a different law, which is the federal FCRA, where they're not supposed to use a credit report for adverse employment decisions without giving the individual involved an adverse notice. But, but of course, the employer is the only one who can tell if the decision-making tool was actually used to make decisions. So it's really, really hard to enforce it if that's the way you set up the obligation. So put it on the vendor, and then they can tell the employer if the tool does a good job or whether it, you know, if it typically recommends hiring 10 whites for every 100, but recommending only two blacks for every 100, that's useful information for the employer to know when it can compare it to another tool that recommends 10 whites for every 100, but eight blacks for every 100. And that would be much more likely to satisfy the EEOC's 80% rule than the other one. Now, I don't think these disclosure laws should mandate a particular standard for illegal disparate impact. That's the job of the underlying discrimination law. But if the employer thinks he's got a good business reason for using the tool that has a larger disparate impact, say it picks only two blacks out of every hundred, he's free to use that tool. But at least he knows that he might be getting involved in a legal risk when he does that. Yeah, I've been very skeptical about trying to regulate AI by saying you can't produce disparate impacts because AI shows up in so many places that are different from hiring. And we've gotten used to hiring law quotas. Not that I think they're a good idea, but that that is something that we've come to expect. But if you bring that same approach to everything else that AI could touch, you're really building quotas and litigation into a whole host of other bureaucratic decision-making processes. Yeah, I, I think a disclosure law where there's already an underlying legal structure for discrimination, that strikes me as being a valuable thing. But as you say, Stuart, if you just make something called discrimination illegal across the board, that's a little crazy. And I, I do think that would be a mistaken way to go, especially if you just say it's it's illegal for AI to do it, but it's not illegal for anybody else to do it. Uh, I, I, well, that's what's interesting here. Go ahead. No, that, I mean, that, that, that was the point. I, look, discrimination is discrimination, whether you use AI or regression analysis or, you know, or, you know, any other tool, right? Well, well, this, I think you're actually getting on a really interesting point. Discrimination is discrimination. It doesn't matter. Like if, if somebody isn't getting a home mortgage, it doesn't matter how the decision was made. Was it a piece of AI or was it, you know, a racist person sitting at a desk? Right. right? And you shouldn't exactly. necessarily apply different standards to it if it's a technology A versus technology B versus a human, right? And this is where AI is actually quite useful as analyzing the outputs of those systems and saying, here is where you have discrimination or here are places you should pay attention. And so this fixation on this other kind of analysis I find just totally wasteful and actually allows for more discrimination in the system. Yeah, I mean, it's not as though employment decisions have been free of bias for the entire history of the universe. And now AI is coming along and inserting this discrimination into the system for the first time. So I, I do think one of the standards might be an AI system doing a better job of mitigating disparate impact rather than whether it has any disparate impact at all. But you don't know any of that stuff unless you do testing. So you've got, you've got to have these kind of requirements for, for vendor testing. And then you've got the information you need for making clever decisions. 
Yeah, I remain a profound skeptic about disparate impact as a way of thinking about that and as a way of defining bias. There's there's a big difference between coming to that outcome without any racist intent and make coming to that outcome by virtue of racist intent. And disparate impacts muddles those two outcomes, treats them as the same. And I'm profoundly uncomfortable with that. But it is the law, at least in hiring. And that's where we're going to go. And that's that's why people in New York City basically said, hey, this this law only applies if we are substantially replacing human beings in decision making. And what do you know, now that we realize that it produces bad regulatory outcomes for us, we've decided it doesn't really replace our human decision making. And kind of interestingly, that's also what people are saying in Europe about their credit scoring system. And uh, the European Court of Justice was asked to resolve the question whether credit scores were an automated decision-making system that had to go through all of the uh, anti-discrimination and other reviews that we just were talking about. And they came kind of surprisingly to the conclusion that just producing the score is an automated decision. Yeah, I was really surprised by this decision. They basically said, first of all, they said it was a decision to produce a credit score. You know, the probabilistic determination of a credit score they found to be a decision, which itself is it's, it's a number. It's not yet a decision. And that got passed on to the banks where a human made the final decision. And they said that's still an automated decision if the score has the determining role, which, you know, a lot of things to say about this. I mean, First of all, we, you know, a lot of us advising on this have been telling clients, well, if you put a human in the loop, you don't have a decision that's solely automated, which is what the language says. And it's not just non-discrimination requirements. There is an opportunity to object to any automated process. Right. So the, the implication of this decision is that banks may have to have some kind of careful human review of every loan application, not letting the score be determinative. And it's a little hard to know what that means because these scores are supposed to be good indications of creditworthiness. So this is a really significant and surprising decision. And kind of weird because you're right. If you put a human in the loop and the human mostly does you know, what you'd expect from the score, which is the logical outcome, the principal remedy is you have to put a human in the loop. <laughs> and, right. and, and so it's not clear that that's going to provide any useful relief for the people who object to it, it's just kind of bureaucratic harassment of the decision process. Yeah, it, it seems silly. I mean, I, mean, I, I didn't read the decision, but I mean, at some point, someone's got to set a risk threshold. I suppose you could automate that too. But but if someone says, if you're above 600, you get the, you get the loan, and then there's no further human intervention, does that still count as there being no human involved? Well, I mean, they're saying that the score has a determining role. And like you say, Mark, I mean, if there's some threshold below which you can't get the loan, I don't, I don't know how they get. I think you get, you get to, you get to contest it. Don't you, you say, I, I am a special snowflake and my low credit score does not reflect how good a credit risk I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're going to have to do, have some additional process involving the human 
And interestingly, this case started with somebody who, it didn't start with automated decision-making. It started with somebody who was rejected, asked for information under GDPR on the reasons for the decision. And the court itself asked this question. So, but you put yourself in that guy's shoes. Now, as you say, Stuart, he probably gets to go to the bank and get some additional process. I'm not sure exactly where this is going. Yeah. It's just going to be a nightmare if you get a litigious person you've turned down. But my bet is it isn't going to produce better outcomes because this whole idea of saying, well, you can't have automated decision making, it was nutty from the start. And this is just disclosing just how nutty it is in particular, which, you know, I guess it's useful if the Europeans ever learned from the exposure of the nuttiness of some of their regulatory stuff, it would be constructive, but that doesn't happen very often. I agree with those sentiments. But here, the court didn't have to go this way because the language says you can't have solely automated decision-making. And this wasn't solely automated decision-making. Yeah. So th that's where I think the court... The, the, the court decision. waves around the idea that there might be bias built into the system. And that's kind of the last resort of people who don't like AI. Oh, there's probably bias because all the people that you trained this on, they were all racists. And so, and it's, I'm sort of disappointed to see Europeans who have not been subject to quite the same race cringing as Americans falling for that one. Because when you start on that, you're basically saying, well, I'll never rely on AI. I want to get a real human being in here so they can apply their own personal bias. It's just, it's sad. All right. Um, I, this is one I wanted to talk about, Sultan. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting. You know, we've had the executive order on AI and now Politico Pro is, has produced a story which is quite plausible, saying that conservatives, well, really Republicans in Congress, are getting ready to attack that order, mainly, as I understand it, because when it tells people who produce AI that they have to disclose a bunch of information to the government about risks, that they're doing so pursuant to the Defense Production Act. And I got to say, the conservative attack on that sounds pretty plausible. It's a really interesting problem because at various points since the Korean War, which is when DPA came out, it's been used to in areas that are far outside of the original intent, right? And that's the meat of this argument about it. It actually doesn't make a lot of sense to me for a totally separate reason. And Stuart, hopefully you appreciate this. The very, very narrow application of what they are compelling, who they are compelling and what they are compelling people to do is actually not really relevant to a huge amount of the AI that's out there, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it would make more sense to me if they said, okay, until Congress passes some sort of governance or, or regulatory structure legislation, we're going to require any artificial intelligence in any you know, regulated environments or whatever, whatever flowery language they put around it to have to report on some information. Then that I think makes your case that it's even a broader kind of not appropriate use of DPA, right? Yeah. I think what was going on there is there was real politics. There were like four companies max yeah. that met the threshold that they were setting for disclosures. And all those companies were more or less willing to go along and it was easy to check. And then they, so they could come up with almost anything. They could say, you know, the 10 commandments require you to do this, but the DPA, you're, I think, quite appropriately flagging the fact that it was a Korean war law 
because we had just finished a total mobilization war in World War II. And then we had this kind of civilian war, police action, and we wanted the civilian infrastructure and economy to keep running, but we needed to intervene to make sure that if we had to have Jeeps, more Jeeps, they got priority in production. And the government didn't have to bid to buy up all of the Rouge plant in order to get more Jeeps. Um, And so it is a major step away from the market economy, but it is all about rationing and requiring that people deliver a product, uh, notwithstanding what the pre-market signals are. And there's just none of that in this AI order. This is not about saying you must sell AI first to the Pentagon, which would have been a good use of DPA. So I think when you read the law, even though it's been very widely used and you know was used to allocate the protective gear and a variety of COVID tools, it never was about saying we can regulate anybody any way we want. And so I suspect that the Republicans are going to do pretty well with this argument. Yeah. Well, your very last sentence there, Stuart, is I'm really glad you said that because there is, I think, a broader question, and we're talking about it with AI regulation, but there is this kind of broader issue, which is technology is moving very, very quickly, right? That is a, you know, we know that, and it's accelerating, whether we're talking about cybersecurity issues, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, fusion energy, you know, whatever, right? And as a nation, we need to prioritize our innovation capabilities in the global competition we are part of, right? And because we can't pass or have not yet, I should say, passed laws that kind of understand that we are in a first in a hundred years, in essence, emerging technology global competition, using laws from 20, 30, 50, 80 years ago to regulate when there is no laws guiding or creating governance mechanisms or regulatory mechanisms or whatever. This is not the first time we're seeing it. And it does, it's, you go back over the last 10 years, we have many examples of this. It's not clear to me that you know we're doing the right things with these processes anyway, but it does seem to be a risk-first regulatory through whatever piece of paper has already gone through Congress. And then we'll figure it out later, right? With kind of air quotes around it. You know, We're seeing this in a bunch of areas. And it just, it, to me, strengthens the need for us to get Congress more involved in these things so that we can get the laws organized the right way for this kind of global competition. Yeah, but of course, that runs right into the polarization where of course. anything you want is something I, I must stand against. I'm, I'm not saying it's likely to happen huh. and, or anything like that. I'm just saying that, that this kind of, you've got a bunch of tools on the, on the, on the shelf and you're going to grab one and you're going to find a misplaced comma and use that to your advantage to get your view across, which means that anything that happens won't survive a change in the party of who's in the White House, yeah. basically. This is a, it, it is a big problem. The Supreme Court is in the process of tearing down all of the tools that a more consensus oriented political establishment used during the Cold War to regulate when it didn't have new law, the presumptions that, for example, when a regulatory agency says, this is what the law means, the presumption was they could do that and that they could stretch the law. And I'm guessing the Supreme Court is going to say, no, you can't. And a lot of the flexibility that regulators have relied on in the last 50 years is probably going to collapse in the next 10. And even in national security, which is sort of the last redoubt of some effort at at consensus, 
So yeah, we're we're going to run into a big problem in 10 years. You won't be able to do anything without a law. And the way things are going, you won't be able to get a law except, you know, in the first two years after a landslide win by a president. Do you really think it's going to take 10 years? It's not. No, maybe not. You, you might be right. Well, we might. It's possible that we'll get a landslide win by a president in this year. And so you could see this problem diminish for a couple of years. But we'll see. Okay, let's move on to the other stories, many of which are kind of Apple-focused and not completely fairly. But Apple is struggling with a lot of European help, in particular, in designing its products and its app store and the like. And they're handling it, I think, pretty poorly. Mark, do you want to introduce this? Yeah, I think the problem is not uh, just a European problem. Uh, I just put together a blog post that's going to come out at Brookings, which will give you a sense of my reaction to these developments, which is it's time to think about price regulation for mobile app stores. It's pretty clear to me that these antitrust measures just can't do the job. You've got a monopoly in that situation and the hope that you can control prices, which is in Apple's case up to about 30% of the fees that developers collect, the hope that you can fix that monopoly pricing problem with these pro-competition measures, I think is vain. Isn't the EU trying something that goes beyond that? Yeah, but look basically what what they did in reaction to the California decision, which said you've got to allow the app developers to use alternative payments. And what Apple said in response to that was, sure, use an alternative payment mechanism if you want, but we'll we'll charge you 27% service fee instead of a 30% service fee. So uh, that effectively mirrors the pricing beforehand. Europe tries to go a little bit farther and they say, oh no, we've uh, we've got a requirement for interoperation and for sideloading, which would allow other app stores to, to do the job or other web stores to allow app developers to compete for the business that the app store has got now. But if you look at the way that Apple has tried to put that in place, it's designed to make it impossible for these new app stores to get going or for the websites to effectively function. We've seen this before in the the history of trying to use regulation to jam open competition. It's the history of trying to get telecommunications competition at the local level from the 1990s where the Federal Communications Commission tried for years to get the monopoly bell companies to open their systems and failed miserably. If you don't even have the kind of regulatory structure that rode roughshod over the uh, the bell companies, and you're trying to do this with generalist antitrust enforcers, I don't think you've got a prayer of actually succeeding in. So what does that mean? Does Apple get away with it? They just say, you know, uh, sure, you want some compliance here. I, this is compliant. Yeah, but it, I mean, maybe the commission will do a better job than I think they will. I mean, already people are saying take a look at what they proposed and open an an infringement proceeding on March 7th, as soon as this thing is effective. And maybe that will convince Apple that they have to be a little bit more forthcoming, but it's going to take pretty serious regulatory oversight to make this system work. I think interoperability is a good way to start, right? Require them to deal with outsiders, but even there, you're going to have to leave Apple some discretion to you know, have system integrity and privacy and security issues handled. And if you're not looking over their shoulder carefully, 
they can use that discretion to reimpose various kinds of monopoly abuse, including pricing abuse. So I, I think it's a regulatory road you're on. This is not just a one-time antitrust decision and then walk away. You're going to have to have a regulator on the job 24 hours a day to make this thing work. So Microsoft is dancing in the street that their their products have failed so badly in the market, Bing and Edge as browsers and search, that they didn't even qualify as evil monopolists. Maury, do you think this is where we're going to go, that the Europe is basically just going to have to say Apple, the iPhone is now subject to massive European regulation and we're just going to keep punishing them until they actually start doing what we want? Well, we're kind of already there. I mean, the Digital Markets Act has named all of these gatekeepers. As Mark was saying, you know, this is suggesting in the U.S. we need more regulation. That's what's happening in Europe. And where Apple's responded to the Epic case in the U.S., in Europe, they're responding to the Digital Markets Act and said, you can have other app stores. We're not going to charge you on these other app stores. But they've said, other app stores will have to satisfy their requirements for user experience and fraud and customer service, and that could be quite a barrier. So it's there. As to Microsoft, what happened to them is they are one of the named gatekeepers like Apple, and it's clear that they are for at least Windows and LinkedIn. But there's a European Commission is looking at which Microsoft services will be subject to these requirements, and it's been leaked that their decision in February is likely to exclude being an edge, because as you say, they don't have much market share. Right. Well, an edge is really, you know, just chrome and drag. So it's not even a contribution to the technology. So that's that makes sense. And Bing, yeah, actually, I like Bing. I use Bing a fair amount, but their market share is still around 3%. So this probably is a sensible outcome. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you asked if they'll be dancing in the street. They're certainly going to be happy about this. I think Microsoft overall as a gatekeeper is probably less affected than Apple and Facebook and Google. Yeah. Because Google is so dominant for search. Apple is so dominant with its operating system, you know, and the iOS and Facebook. Maybe Facebook a little less so. So Microsoft's sitting relatively well in this picture. Yep. I think that's right. So one of the ways that the government is intervening in this market and especially in AI is to throw billions of dollars at advanced chip manufacturing. And Sultan, there was an interesting story suggesting that the money has been out there for almost a year and very little has been actually awarded, even though the people most likely to get it are pretty well known. And it's turning out to be a fight over what are the conditions? When am I going to get it? What am I supposed to do with it? And it looks like there's now a deadline for getting those big chunks of money actually handed out. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's kind of fascinating because, you know, over the last 30 years, so much of federal research dollars has gone away. And so the kind of the traditional, you know, feed the university, the, the professors and students create interesting things, and that just spins up into companies and there's all these downstream. Now it's these big checks to existing companies, specifically to put manufacturing of advanced semiconductors on the ground in the United States. Yeah. And it is just not, and it's company, it's all the names, you know, it's Intel, it's TSMC, et cetera. But it's very clear that from the law, which passed in uh, 2021, and then the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, 
is specifically designed for this to start moving forward and for there to be progress, you know, in the face of all these announcements from China doing interesting things with chips and things like that. But it's not moving forward at all. And so now there's all this other legal noise going around. So the president, he wants this announced and some of the money flowing before the election naturally, and especially in Arizona and Ohio, where a lot of these projects are going to go forward. And so I read this article as saying that he has told the Commerce Department, you need to get announcements out or ready by the time I give my State of the Union address in early March. And so we're going to we're going to see an enormous amount of pressure, a lot of late night pizza at the Commerce Department trying to hammer out the terms of these big, big grants. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting too, because we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? We're talking somewhere in the order of 50,000 jobs across the entire program, right? And it's a lot of corporate subsidies. And we, frankly, here in the United States, we don't have the infrastructure to build these, right? It's not something you can just flip a switch and say, okay, now three years from now, we're going to be able to manufacture X percent of global chips. That's just not possible. And some of the places like Arizona, building chips in the desert is really hard. Like of all the places you could build it, it's actually- Really? But, you know, Intel's been building them there for 20 years. Uh, Yeah, but not at the scale and not with the kinds of technologies. You're not talking three nanometer chips that go into the latest smartphones. Like there there is some actual technical nuance here. I'll try not to make it too technical, but like there is a little bit of nuance here. And the fact is, and this is kind of a broader STEM issue we have in the U.S., we just aren't graduating enough engineers who are American citizens who are going to stay here and do the work. Yeah, so there's a lot of complaints from TSMC in particular that things go a lot faster in Japan than in the U.S. And that's probably partly staff and partly there's talk about the having to do environmental reviews on all of these subsidies, which is like a five-year chore. So I I think this is going to be a rude awakening for TSMC, which thinks it's getting a bunch of money and doesn't realize it's also getting a bunch of headaches. Yeah. Senator Mark Kelly said something that that really did catch my eye, which he says he thinks it'll take five years, Yeah, which doesn't go into anybody's re-election campaign. Right. Right. They won't say that. They'll hand over a big check and then um, nothing will be heard for months, if not years. Yeah, that's probably right. Okay. So- Here's a story I wanted to flag. Ron Wyden's always got a campaign that he thinks we should be morally panicked about. And it's always hostile to intelligence collection. And it's always privacy focused. And so he wrote a letter saying, look, I've just gotten NSA to admit that they are buying Americans' internet data without warrants, because everybody buys data without warrants, but that's okay. And then he he claimed that NSA, his letter says it's buying Americans domestic internet metadata, which I have to say is as close to an outright falsehood as Ron Wyden has been caught at in recent years. What NSA said was we avoid getting domestic data when we buy data, but we do get net flow metadata, which means we're not getting content with one end in the United States and the other abroad. So you can say that's Americans' domestic internet metadata if you want to, but to leave out the qualification that NSA specifically included in its letter is just misrepresentation. It's the difference between a flat criminal violation and the 702 program, which is focused exactly on getting access to data where one end is in the United States. 
is perfectly legal and it doesn't require a warrant. So I think Wyden's staff is reaching and putting him in an awkward position of not being a reliable source for the data that he is asserting. So that said, there will be a fuss over data. There's a lot of interest in purchases of data and sales of data, and we're going to see some form of regulation in this area. In fact, Bloomberg, I think, put out a story very short, probably based on a leak, saying there's going to be an executive order that prevents data brokers from selling information about American citizens to hostile nations like China and North Korea and Russia. And that I find completely credible. And it would be something that very few people are going to object to, I think, because the national security right doesn't think that China and Russia should have access to that data. And the left thinks that more restrictions on sale of data is always a good idea. So we're probably going to see something like that. And again, my prediction is before the State of the Union address, because this is going to be a theme in the president's address. So that's me doing a little bit of news announcing. Maury, we have a cyber law podcast alum and participant, Jim Dempsey, who's written a long paper about software security liability. And he's not here. So I'm going to ask you to explain what he thinks we should be doing to improve security through liability. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Stuart, you and I wrote a paper predicting that software security liability might come along. I had to look back. It was in 2003, which just goes to prove you predict enough stuff and you wait long enough. Uh, Some that, of it that's, uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> Some of it might come true. And then Jim is just suggesting it now, but it's a sensible proposal. Basically, what he is saying is to make software secure. And this is what we were, we were saying it might come along. People like Bruce Schneier has been saying this for a long time. You need a liability standard. And Jim's paper is effectively about saying, well, all the importance is in that standard of care. What is the standard of care? And he proposes a three-pronged approach to the standard of care, which is, number one, some basic rules of stupid stuff you shouldn't do as the floor. Uh, number two, for stuff above that, have some kind of standard based upon the product liability defects. So if it causes harm, you can say, well, that's defective, obviously, but it wasn't defective because of some known and obvious flaw that any idiot should have avoided. But it is a problem. We're going to hold you liable, but only if you didn't fit within the safe harbor, as I understand it. Well, yeah. So number three is there's a safe harbor. So there would be some set of secure coding practices that if you can prove that you follow the secure coding practices, you would be subject only to number one, only to those basic idiot proofing rules, but not to the general product liability standard. And I, you know, who knows whether legislation will go this way, but I think it's a pretty sensible proposal. And we both like Jim. Yeah, it is a thoughtful proposal. I'm all in on listing the stupid things that people shouldn't do, because by and large, Things that are stupid from a computer security point of view in 2003 are still stupid in 2023. They just, they don't get more secure magically. So you can kind of write rules and say, don't do that. And it's 
you haven't quite future-proofed it, but it's not like you can be sure that it's going to be overtaken by events. The harder problem is, can you identify good coding practices and say, if you do those things, we're not going to hold you liable? I think it's worth a try. And since it's basically telling people, here's our idea about things you should do that will protect you, you worry less that you will not have accounted for changes in the world. If you fail to account for changes in the world, you will not be imposing liability everywhere you should. But that's not the most disastrous consequence of poor regulation. The most disastrous one is that you stifle innovation in a place where you you shouldn't. So this does seem like a good framework. Yeah, agreed. Okay. One more thing that I wanted to talk about. Amazon has announced that people will no longer be allowed to share their videos with the police. The police will have to go to Amazon and ask Amazon to produce them. And that means they'll have to bring a subpoena or some other process. And I understand why they wanted to do that. But I have to say, who the hell do they think bought those damn things? Right? This is is my ring doorbell. I ought to be able to share the product of that ring doorbell with any damn person I want to, unless it's illegal. And they're basically saying, the way I read this is, oh, you're such a racist, you'll give it to the police for any damn reason because you want to harass people of color who happen to be in the neighborhood. And we can't have that. We can be trusted, but you can't. And it's it shows a contempt for their customers. It's just deeply offensive to me. Stuart, you might you read this more closely than I did, but I had I took a quick look at it and, and I thought I read that what it was doing was Amazon was shutting down a facility that allowed the police to go direct to customers and ask and for request. yes that to say there was a crime in the neighborhood. Do you have any doorbell footage you can give to us? But I don't think they're saying that they can't go to the customers. They just can't go to the customers via the Ring platform. Well, fair enough. Although it's sort of hard to know how they will get to them otherwise. Walk around with a sign that says, please share your ring doorbells? Well, you know, in my street in London, lots of people have ring doorbells. And every time something goes wrong, ring or the Google equivalent, thing goes around on the neighborhood WhatsApp group. Do you have any video of this? I see. So so you think actually this will turn out not to be that big a deal, that people will still share them, that Amazon is virtue signaling to say, well, we're not going to be part of that lynching. But in fact, it will still happen. Yeah, more of a hassle for police. They'll have to go walk around the neighborhood, find out, get on that WhatsApp group, whatever. But I think they'll still be able to get some from the individuals. So what is Amazon accomplishing here? I guess they're saying, well, we're just not going to be part of it because we're so morally superior to our customers that we won't do it. But those benighted bigots can go ahead and share the information. I would have put it less colorfully, but I think... Okay, so I'm obviously pissed off at pretty much all of big tech today. Maury, I really want to talk about this story because I thought this was fascinating. China, which is viewed as like the Uber regulator, the regulator is not afraid to regulate everything and, you know, viewed with some envy in the West for that, has totally collapsed on regulating video games. And their video companies had to lose $63 billion in market cap to do it. But boy, they have totally switched directions. Well, yes, it's a significant switch. I mean, I'm in the ed tech market and they killed their ed tech market in 2021, 2022 with new rules. And this looked like a repeat of that where they just 
in December announced that they were going to make it a lot harder to give incentives for playing video games. And it tanked the share price of Tencent and NetEase, who's the other big player. So the regulator, which is the National Press and Publication Administration there, still has to approve video games. It's just they haven't shifted the standards in the adverse way. But in the last week, they both took the new rules off their website and approved one of the highest numbers of video games they have in the last couple of years. So it's not a complete switch in regulation, but it's a significant switch in the standards they're applying. And the guy who was responsible for all this stuff got fired, if I remember right, or at least moved it to, you know, counting chickens in the port of Shenzhen. If he's still alive, then he, you know, that's a pretty good outcome in China. <laughs> I, you know, I, my impression is that um, you, you live through these collapses in power. It's just they keep you around and make you miserable. In Russia, you, you know, you clearly fall out of a high window. That happens less in China, I think. Although... Li Keqiang, who was the number two from Xi Jinping's first term, recently died of a heart attack in surprising circumstances in, a, in the middle of a hotel. So yeah, maybe, okay. maybe. All right. We're just about done. I want to pick up three or four stories that I thought people should know have been out there because they tell us something about the world that you might not know if you weren't following it. First, the market for startups who are not AI just sucks. The VCs have pulled back. Billions have been lost by people because they can't find an exit. This is a really bad market for innovation in anything except AI. That's worth remembering. Apple has produced what is rare for it, an apparent commercial dud and technical dud, the Vision Pro. They spent billions and billions of dollars to, to produce something that is a much more expensive version of Meta's headset, and it's probably better too, but nobody seems to be interested in buying it or playing with it. It's surprisingly poorly received, and Apple knew that. They rolled it out after spending those billions to say, oh, yeah, oh, here's something. You might be interested in this. We'll be improving it a lot over the years, but they that's not a usual premiere for an Apple product. The only good thing they can say is, Hey, when Facebook produced the Meta headset, people just were savage. And now they're just uninterested. So maybe that's the best news that they can offer. Quantum computing is turning out to be really hard. There's a lot of, I think we might be looking at a quantum winter or at least a quantum fall. People are finding more and more difficulty doing quantum computing and the idea that it's going to change everything next week or next year is looking pretty unlikely. So it's kind of the flip side of the AI hype. Uh, quantum computing is getting dehyped. And then finally, Cruise, the uh, autonomous vehicle company that GM owns, has, and, and everybody has seen this, has kind of self-immolated. They uh, did a terrible job of handling a fatality in San Francisco that probably was caused or made worse by the particular script the vehicle followed after an accident that was not its fault. But apparently regulators who asked about it in some cases got shown or given information that didn't disclose how the car made the accident worse. That has produced a, an endless series of regulatory inquiries and a big report by an outside counsel on what went wrong. 
what really went wrong here is the business model isn't there. These cars are still really expensive. They fail occasionally, but badly. And so people are still struggling to figure out how we can get AI to do this for us right. Waymo is the last company standing that's doing that. If they run into trouble, uh, autonomous vehicles are going to be set back a decade is my guess. So that's my prediction that we're not going to get self-driving vehicles very soon is my guess. So Stuart, just to hear everything I just heard, this is fancy technology winter, quantum, yep. self-driving, Apple, you know, is, are we all going back to the homestead? Is that, is that your view? No, I, I think what we're seeing is that these are all investments that people made when it looked like technology was going to take over the world. And you could become one of the most important companies in the world, most valuable companies in the world with technology. And so the technology companies said, well, we're making all this money. We might as well spend doing more of what we're good at. And what they're discovering is not everything they're good at has a market. Or maybe they're not good at everything they might think they're good at. That could be too. That could be too. I wish that we had self-driving vehicles and that quantum was easier and even that the Vision Pro was a really cool device. It may even be a really cool device. I used the Microsoft version of it once and I thought it was kind of fun. But I, kind of fun is not the same as $3,500 worth of fun. Okay. Sultan, Mark, Maury, thank you. This was a very substantive and we covered a lot of ground. With that done, let's turn to our interview with Rob Silvers. So about a week ago, the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee had a hearing on legislation to give a congressional charter, essentially, to the Cyber Safety Review Board. And they had a bunch of people from the private sector. I thought it would be fun to get Rob Silvers on. He's the Undersecretary for Policy. He is the chair of the Cyber Safety Review Board and the proponent for the legislation. But he wasn't there. So this is a chance to talk to Rob about the board and the legislative proposal that he sent up to the Hill. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be back on the podcast. Yeah, and I should say, Rob has my old job. So uh, if you think there's going to be a certain amount of old boy yeah, soft pedaling, yeah, you're probably right. But I nonetheless will try to ask a few of the tough questions. This was not exactly a love fest, although most people were supportive of the board there were some concerns expressed about conflicts and subpoena power and the like. So let me ask first, why did you think the board needed legislation and how did you feel the hearing went? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. So let me just give a quick bit of background about the board and where we are today with it. The board conducts authoritative fact finding and issues recommendations in the wake of the most significant cybersecurity incidents. Half the members of the board are all the federal leads for cybersecurity. So in addition to myself, there's the heads of cyber at NSA and FBI and CISA and the National Cyber Director is a member and on and on. And then half the members are private sector luminaries who bring incredible expertise to these after action reviews. And the board was established by President Biden's executive order in 2021. We've conducted two reviews to date of the Log4j software vulnerability and of the spate of attacks launched by a group of hackers known as Lapsus. We're now in the midst of our third review on the Microsoft Exchange Online incident that came to light last year and that resulted in the compromise of some very senior U.S. government officials' email accounts, among others. What we've proposed as an administration is legislation 
that would codify the board and that would give it some additional authorities so that it can do its work, including a limited subpoena authority that would allow the board to get information that it otherwise was having trouble getting on a voluntary basis. And our vision is that the legislation would maintain this really unique structure of having the mix of federal and private sector members, because I think that's what makes this board unique and authoritative in a very noisy ecosystem, but would also enhance the board's authorities. We should probably say that the model for the board was the National Transportation Safety Board, which does reports after things like big train crashes, plane crashes and the like. And it has been around for 50 years and has a very good reputation for really getting to the bottom of things and telling us this is what went wrong and usually recommending changes. And, you know, our transportation system, especially air transportation, is remarkably safe in part because of that. This is meant to be something similar. I want to come back to the question of composition and conflicts and subpoenas, but choosing incidents to investigate was something that people asked about and they said maybe there should be mechanisms for deciding what to look at. And I do think there's something to be said for that because when a plane goes down, we know an NTSB is going to look at that. But, you know, a, a cybersecurity plane goes down every half hour. And so choosing which cybersecurity disaster to look at is not so easy. And I would have thought you have some debates about that. And it might make sense to explain in legislation or otherwise how you choose which of the disasters you're going to look at. Yeah, I think it is important to be transparent on how the matters come under review and how they're selected. And I'm happy to talk about that. So the Secretary of Homeland Security and the Director of CISA have the authority to task the board to review an incident. And when we've had those discussions about what would be a good topic to review, the criteria, the factors that are in the mix are questions like, well, what was the severity of the incident and did it have a lot of national level impacts such that it warrants the attention? Another question, another factor is, are there likely to be lessons learned from this incident that if uncovered and then shared with the community could really be likely to drive better security outcomes? Is there something in there that CISOs and network defenders and regulators and legislators and policymakers all should know about? Because if they only knew and we could make accompanying recommendations to those lessons learned, they would make for better security in our ecosystem. And then another factor is, has the incident already been closely analyzed such that the community has already benefited from those lessons learned? Or rather, is there something underexplored or unexplored here where having the firepower of these kinds of experts come together would really add a lot of value? I often get asked, how come this board did not review solar winds? The incident from 2020, which mm -hmm. was a very important and impactful incident. But by the time the board had really stood up and selected and vetted its members and brought them on board, 
that incident was a fair bit in the rearview mirror and had already been really, really closely studied. Mandiant issued reports, Solar Winds put out its own disclosures, the US government studied it, and the community had taken away some real lessons learned and drove actions accordingly. Congress came together on a bipartisan basis based on solar winds to pass incident reporting legislation, landmark legislation to require incident report to CISA. Through executive order, the administration ordered agencies and organizations to move towards zero trust architecture, to focus on software supply chain and other things. And so the White House and we felt like there was already a lot done based on what we learned, where if you looked at something like Log4j or Lapsus, it was much fresher, a much more nascent but pernicious set of security vulnerabilities and actors out there that we felt the community would really benefit from. Let me ask you a tougher question, which is, I think one of the reasons I was glad to see the cloud problem that Microsoft suffered qualify for this review is I wasn't sure Microsoft was going to want to talk about everything that went wrong there. And having the board do this made it much more likely we were going to learn exactly what happened and what went wrong, rather than waiting for some third party to try to write a report that Microsoft might not cooperate with, or to have Microsoft tell us why they think it happened with all of the risk of apologies and soft peddling of problems. So is that part of what you consider that this is something where the disaster was in one place and we aren't confident that the party who suffered it is going to want to talk about it. Thanks, George. So we are in the midst of uh, the, the board's third review on the Microsoft incident. I am not going to discuss the particulars of our work. That is a pending yep. uh, review. And I think it's important for the integrity of our work and also the credibility of the board that those proceedings stay confidential until the board is ready to speak publicly through issuance of its reports. And I'm going to be honoring that today. But I will say that we are conducting a thorough review. We are working with Microsoft during the course of that review. And I do think that stepping away from the particular Microsoft incident and this particular review, a huge benefit of the board model is that before the CSRB was created, you always had, you had certain kinds of investigations that could happen in the aftermath of a review. A company would do its own internal investigation. There might be a law enforcement investigation or a regulatory investigation, but it was never really for the public benefit. It was always for a particular purpose. The board is unique in that it says, that's a really important set of facts and an incident that happened. We need to learn about that and then push it out so everyone can benefit and elevate their security based on what happened. And I do think when you look at the unique credibility and expertise of the members of this board, being all the federal leads and cybersecurity luminaries from the private sector who are really world leading, it does create a forum where companies are willing often to cooperate and share what they know with the board. That makes sense to me. If the idea is we really need to look at these things in great detail, that it would be perfectly obvious why you would say, since we absolutely need cooperation, having subpoena authority, even if we never use it, is one way to get that cooperation. The hearing featured people saying, I'm not sure we should be issuing subpoena authority to a board that includes a lot of competitors, either among the people who are on the board or among the people who are going to be investigated. And so there was concern 
partly about the subpoena because no one likes to see another government agency with subpoenas that might be aimed at them. But it was dressed in uh, what about conflicts? So can you talk about both of those issues? Yeah, it's a really important set of questions. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's natural that people in the community hear that there are private sector members to a government board and they wonder, well, how are those people going to be able to separate themselves from their employer's interests or their financial interests and the like? And I think we have really good answers to those questions. We have a really strong ethics and recusal process in operation now for the board and has been in operation since this board launched. Every single private sector member has to file extensive and invasive financial disclosures to DHS. Those financial disclosures, which include any financial assets they hold, any employment interests or other financial interests that they may hold, are reviewed by career ethics lawyers at DHS. And if there's any conflict of interest that's presented in a review or even a potential for an appearance of a conflict of interest, that will result in recusals from the board's work. And in fact, in the current review of the Microsoft Exchange Online incident, we have had a small number of members recuse themselves because of employment or other financial interests that they have. Our deputy chair of the board, Heather Atkins, who is the vice president for security engineering at Google, has recused herself entirely from this review as Microsoft is a competitor. And so we have Dmitry Alperovich stepping in as the acting deputy chair. He is free from those kinds of conflicts as certified by Agency Ethics Council. In this review, there's a small handful of members that are not participating. There are 12 nationally recognized cybersecurity leaders who have been cleared by Ethics Council to be free of conflicts and are conducting a really rigorous piece of work here. And I think people can have confidence that this work is still being done and that it is being done with complete ethics integrity. That would make sense to me. I've dealt with those guys and they are um, nitpicky, if anything. You certainly don't feel as though they're, they're letting much slide. So I'm inclined to think you're right. But you do need some very clear rules on that because, you know, we live in, a, in an era where no one is going to escape snark and accusations of being part of the swamp or having conflicts. So it makes sense for the rules to be clear. And it wouldn't hurt, I suppose, if conflicts rules were written into the legislation, would it? No, not at all. And in fact, our draft legislation requires DHS to establish those rules. We've already gone ahead and established the rules. Right. We're not waiting for the legislation because the board is fully operating now. I will say that the rules are quite clear. There are criminal penalties for members that work under conflicts of interest. I mean, this is a serious thing that members take seriously and our ethics council takes seriously. I do want to address your point, Stuart, about how there's questions about in the legislation, would a subpoena be issued based on a private sector member pushing a subpoena to go against one of his or her competitors. That's not possible because under the legislation that we've proposed, only federal members would be authorized to vote to issue a subpoena. Yeah. We thought it, that issuing a subpoena is an inherently government authority. Even if you're out of a complex of interest zone, we just feel like that 
element is inherently governmental, so it would be reserved only to federal decision-making on issuance of a subpoena. In any event, if somebody's competitor is a subject of, an, of one of the reviews of the board, then that member is going to be recused off of that, right. just under the general conflict of interest rules that I just described. So there's at least two layers of protection against that being a concern. I think this is the private sector just worried that it'll be one more set of subpoenas that they have to worry about if they end up under the microscope. And that's exactly why you need the authority and why I would hope you would never have to use it. So two other questions and then we'll finish up. First, kind of quickly, these are very impressive people with very, very impressive and extraordinarily demanding jobs. Who's actually doing the work? Are they actually spending the time or do you have staff that do everything from arrange the meetings and uh, uh, collect the data and distribute it to actually thinking about what the security problems were? Yes and yes. It is all of the above. So as to the members, they all have day jobs. They all have full-time jobs. But this is a working board. This is not a ceremonial ribbon-cutting type board. And everyone who signs up understands that they're in this to roll up sleeves, really understand what happened, and then bring their horsepower into developing actionable recommendations that can help the entire country. Got it. Second, we have built a permanent staff and infrastructure to support the board's work. So there is a full-time executive director of the board who's a career DHS employee. There are technical experts. There is a writing team. There are contractors and there are full-time lawyers and the like. So we've built that support and the members can give guidance and steer. And then there's a really talented team that's bringing that into action. So the last question, some of the witnesses questioned whether there should be access to classified information by board members. And you can certainly imagine that there would be incidents that wouldn't require that. But it struck me as odd that the board would be told you can't use classified information because sometimes that's going to be an important part of the analysis. Absolutely. Some of our reviews have not required access to any classified information at all, and some have. I think it would be an omission if we did not permit members to access information that we held about the incident, because how then could they come to fully understand the incident and advise the community based on it? So it does need to be a component of this that members be qualified to obtain a security clearance. We obviously attempt to declassify our work to the greatest extent possible. And in our first two reviews, there was no classified annex to the report whatsoever. That's a priority, but I think we can't create blind spots right. for ourselves. We do need to maintain the ability to get to classified information when the board needs it. Well, uh, DHS and CISA have a long history of doing things first, showing that they work, and then asking the Congress to uh, make an honest woman of them. And this is in that tradition. I, I, I think it's great. Uh, you've done a great job getting this up and running. And the first two reports were very good and I think left people feeling this is an institution we need to have around. So congratulations. Good luck with the legislation. And that's always hard and it's only getting harder. But there's at least a decent chance that it will pass. And I appreciate your coming on to talk a little bit about your answers to the questions that were raised. Thank you, Stuart. Always a pleasure to be on. 
to our listeners, if you've got questions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review. We'd love to get a review. But in any event, this has been episode 489 of the Cyber Law Podcast. special snowflake and my low credit score does not reflect how good a credit risk I am.